Happy Thursday, and thank you for joining me on this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. We have a special guest coming up in just a moment. Uh, David Atkins, a member of the California DNC, will be joining us. That is an interview that you are going to want to hear, an interview that you need to hear. Um, so that is just ahead coming up in just a moment. I wanted to talk to him specifically about the political stratosphere right now in the country and also where we stand socially as a constitutional republic and how we function as a two-party functioning country um, and if we can still effectively say that we are in a good place. Um, but I want to start tonight as fast as the news is moving, as fast as the news is moving as a bullet train. I want to start tonight in Fulton County. In Fulton County Court today in Atlanta, Georgia, Donald Trump appeared in court and he pled not guilty to the 13 charges that he is indicted on in Georgia in this 41 count indictment. And because he pled not guilty, he does not have to show up in court next week to face those charges. So this will now immediately go to trial where he will have the chance to prove his innocence, of course, and the prosecution will also present their case. And because he pled not guilty today, I mean, it also raises an interesting perspective as to what is also his, you know, proposed endgame here. We may have got just a glimpse of that because he's now requesting a speedy trial to sever his case also as well from the other 19 co-defendants that are charged in this indictment. He's not the first person to do that that has been charged in this case here. Under Georgia law, a defendant can request a speedy trial, and the prosecution has to adhere to that. It legally has to take that under consideration, and so it was. The judge in this case gave Kenneth Cheeseboro the first defendant to make that request his trial date, and that is set to begin on October 23rd. Kenneth Cheeseboro is an attorney in this case. He wanted a speedy trial, so if you're asking for a speedy trial in this case in Georgia, specifically, if you want it, most likely you will get it. Be careful what you wish for, especially when it comes to this one. Because the possibility of conviction looms very, very large, specifically because this is such a comprehensive and damning indictment. We'll keep you updated on that, though, as far as the approval requests for those separate and speedy trials. Of course, Trump is among one of those, as well as Sidney Powell as well. Uh, Mark Meadows, the former White House Chief of Staff, also charged in this indictment, is already seeking to remove his case from Georgia, from state court to federal court. He wants it at the federal level. He's arguing that it should be moved to the federal level. Conceivably, that because he could, you know, have a better chance at, you know, litigation, at avoiding a conviction in this case by arguing that he was well within his purview, he was well within his, his duties as the White House Chief of Staff to act and to do that, even though he stepped way outside his jurisdiction all the way down into Atlanta. We'll keep you updated on that case as well. We'll let you know more as we learn more. But everything is moving really fast here. In relation to this 41-count indictment and the impending trial date announcement, Trump pled not guilty today, but he was not the only one. Jenna Ellis, a former Trump attorney who prosecutors believed assisted in the fake electors plot, she also pled guilty. She suspected of also racketeering charges, of course. We know that the arraignment in this case is set for September 6th at 9.45 in the morning. Now, basically what that means is that all the defendants will show up in court and the charges are formally read to them and the judge asks if they want a lawyer. It's a formal court appearance before the commencement of the actual a trial. And one of the things that we were speculating about or asking about or just wondering about 
for weeks now, essentially, is that will these trials be broadcasted for the country to see? Will we get to see Trump and the other co-defendants in this case tried on camera? Something like the January 6th hearings that were, you know, publicly televised. The judge in the Georgia case in Fulton County said, yes, you will get to see it. The Georgia election trial will be broadcasted live on national television. And the judge says that it will also be on YouTube live as it happens. So once again, I mean... I said everything is moving fast here. These are just like sprawling moving parts just happening simultaneously at the same time. I also will say that there was a development today in a situation in a development um, that I did not think would happen. I was starked when this happened today, but it did. Um, about a year ago, Georgia Republicans essentially passed a law at the state legislature that gave them, that would essentially would create this new commission that would give this commission of political appointees, the right, uh, the power to effectively remove and discipline elected prosecutors um, over decisions or policies not to prosecute certain offenses and, you know, prosecutorial misconduct, stuff like that. What happened recently is Georgia Republicans went directly after the attorney, the district attorney here, Fonnie Willis, DA Fonnie Willis out of Fulton County, who brought this indictment against Trump. <laughs> brought this indictment against Trump, right? This 41-count sprawling indictment. Georgia Republicans went after her essentially to say that, hey, we're going to be investigating you soon because what happened here is a little suspicious. Now, what they could argue is that, yeah, prosecutorial misconduct happened. This was corrupt. But that's not the case. This is a political agenda hell-bent on getting prosecutors out of office in Georgia who are, you know, prosecuting their allies, who are indicting their allies, who are indicting fellow Republicans, and especially in cases like this involving the former president, Donald Trump, who is indicted in this case for trying to overturn the results of the state's 2020 presidential election. That is illegal. You cannot do that. But Republicans, despite this indictment, are saying that they will use this new law to remove her from office, conceivably for prosecutorial misconduct, which of course, which of course is bogus here, but they are going to try that. And they are setting their eyes on District Attorney Fonnie Willis, not once again for prosecutorial misconduct because nothing wrong happened, but for prosecuting the wrong person. Because this is a political move. This is not a move in the pursuit of justice. Or, hey, let's take out corrupt prosecutors and let's have some law-abiding officials in office. Let's have some law-abiding officials in the judicial branches of our government. This is not that. This is going directly after the prosecutor who pursued an investigation, who pursued this indictment against apparently the wrong person. Hey, yes, you, you're a prosecutor, you can pursue justice, but just not after our guy. That's not how law works. That's not how this country works. That's not how a rule of law functioning society works, right? You don't just get to choose who you prosecute. You don't just get to choose who gets to go to jail based off, you know, political favoritism. But that is what's happening in this case. The Public Rights Project is a nonprofit that works on a lawsuit um, by this bipartisan group of Georgia prosecutors 
um, against this bill because specifically what Georgia Republicans are targeting is specifically black Democrats, black DAs in the state. And they filed a preliminary injunction against this commission of political appointees who seek to remove prosecutors just based off charging the wrong people off of supposed mus prosecutor prosecutorial misconduct as their essentially cover here. They filed that preliminary injunction a couple days ago against the commission on Thursday, seeking to stop it from initiating any disciplinary or removal proceedings against a prosecutor while litigation over the law is pending. Quote, the original reasoning for the commission was to go after DAs who supposedly weren't prosecuting enough. It's not only about prosecuting enough, it's also about prosecuting too much if the defendant is the wrong one from the perspective of the per partisan officials who are creating and staffing this commission. End quote. So, once again, this is a commission of political appointees in Georgia. And they are seeking to remove D.A. Willis for effectively doing her job, for effectively carrying out this indictment and pursuing justice for those who violated the law in the state of Georgia. Quote, this is part of a national trend that we're seeing of predominantly white, often gerrymandered state legislators targeting prosecutors, often black prosecutors. End quote. <sighs> State legislator members in Georgia are already requesting investigations into D.A. Willis for this indictment. We're also seeing reports that Jim Jordan and House Republicans are wanting to look into this case as well. Something in Georgia is fishy about this. But we cannot necessarily say that we're surprised. We can say that this is, a, this is a developing storm. We're continuing to watch this. But it does prevent a new threat to the Republic, right? If you're going to go after the people that are pursuing justice against those who violated the law, if you're going to go after those people because it benefits your political agenda, because it benefits your political view of justice, right? You cannot politicize justice. You cannot say, hey, we need to pursue justice. We need to have a functioning justice system in our country and then retract that statement when it becomes your guy that's under criminal the criminal scope, right? You Justice is not selective, right? <laughs> justice is, is not um, discriminatory. If you're going to say that we are a, a rule of law country, a law abiding nation based on the rules of abiding the law, basic, you know, basic rules as such, then you cannot just say, hey, charge everyone except our guy. Right? That's, that's, you can't do that. You can't do that. And today, the governor of Georgia, <laughs> the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, he came out and said, I'm against this. I, I, I don't support this. D.A. Willis has done nothing wrong to my, to my knowledge. And this, I, I do not condone. This was the governor today. Uh, many of you will recall that in the final weeks of 2020, I clearly and repeatedly said that I would not be calling a special session of the General Assembly to overturn the 2020 election results because such an action would have been unconstitutional. There have been calls by one individual in the General Assembly and echoed outside of, the, of these walls by the former president for a special session that would ignore current Georgia law and directly interfere with the proceedings of a separate but equal branch of government. Up to this point, I have not seen any evidence 
that D.A. Willis's actions or lack thereof warrant action by the Prosecuting Attorney Oversight Commission, but that will ultimately be a decision that the Commission will make. Regardless, in my mind, a special session of the General Assembly to end run around this law is not feasible and may ultimately prove to be unconstitutional. The bottom line is that in the state of Georgia, as long as I'm governor, we're going to follow the law and the Constitution, regardless of who it helps or harms. Quote, it is not feasible and ultimately it may prove to be unconstitutional. Also, you know, regardless of who it harms politically. End quote. Once again, that is the Republican governor of Georgia. Yes, you are live. It is August 31st, 2023. <laughs> You're listening to the Jeremiah Patterson Show. This is actually real news. I was shocked to hear that today, given that it was the governor who actually signed that law. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> politics is ironic these days. What can I say? But the governor essentially said that, hey, you know, I'm not going along with this. Republicans in Georgia, I I'm not going along with this. Um, you cannot go after D.A. Willis just because she and she charged one of our guys, just because she charged Trump and the other 19 co-defendants in this case. I'm not going along with this because to my mind and to my knowledge, there has been no evidence of prosecutorial misconduct. She has done everything by the book. So that was the governor today in a remarkable press conference saying that basically this can just move along. This does not need to happen. Uh, D.A. Willis does not need to be removed from office for indicting Donald Trump and the other 19 officials. But Republicans in Georgia may not be operating on the governor's timing because they are very, very much hell-bent on getting Trump way out of the waters in this. Republicans in Georgia, Georgia Republicans, are seeking to overhaul laws to pardon Trump in the state of Georgia. Now, unlike other states, Georgia does not uh, invest the pardon power in the governor. The pardon power does not belong to the governor of the state of Georgia. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp cannot conceivably pardon a hypothetically convicted Donald Trump in the state. That would go to the state board. Um, there is a board, of course, that comes together and they will then vote on if uh, a pardon could be, you know, considered or if a pardon could be handed out, if a pardon could be given. But <laughs> a little thing about the, the state board with that is the fact that, you know, there has to be at least a minimum prison sentence of five years in order for a pardon to be considered. And the racketeering election case here in Georgia the minimum prison sentence for Rico is five years. <laughs> so, I mean, this whole thing is just completely asinine, right? Diametrically incredulous. But this is happening. This is America. This is 2023. This is actually happening. And the minimum prison sentence for that Rico statute that's being charged, of course, in this indictment is five years. The maximum is 20 years, of course. But in order for them to even consider a pardon, hey, you have to at least serve five years if you're convicted. But Georgia Republicans are hell-bent on avoiding that. They are hell-bent on avoiding even that five-year minimum prison sentence. They're saying, no, we just want to completely overhaul that together. We need to, you know, Reinstate the pardon laws in the governor. We need to we need to pardon Trump as quickly as possible if he is convicted in the state of Georgia. At the federal level, 
if the former president is indicted at the federal level and hypothetically he becomes president, will he try to pardon himself? Now, it is not hyperbolic for me to present that question because, you know, this is something that he actually did try in office in January of 2021, shortly before the 20th, the inauguration when Joe Biden became president, shortly before his term ended, it is reported that he did discuss pardoning himself. And if something like that were to happen, if something like a conviction were to happen in Georgia before the 2024 presidential election, could we see a state-federal showdown? Could we see a constitutional crisis of the means that this country has never seen before? Could we see a showdown that involves the, the U.S. military, that involves law enforcement, that involves violence? These are stark, stark possibilities that we really do have to consider as a country as we're heading into the 2024 election, possibly one of the darkest and most horrifying moments for us as a democracy, as a functioning constitutional republic, as a two-party system that functions on the basis that, hey, we have a Republican Party and we have a Democratic Party. These are two major functioning political platforms. We have a country as a Democratic Republic that functions on the basic norms that, hey, if you violate the law, you, you are charged. You go to jail. No one is above the law. But we are seeing that overhauled again and again. We are seeing those basic democratic norms erroneously and vituperatively violated. In a sense that gives us this ultimatum as a country as if we are going to continue to stay a democracy or if we want to delve into dictatorship. Because that's very much what we are looking at here. And that is not a false ultimatum. This election really is a referendum on if we want to continue functioning as a democratic republic and voting, or if we want to just not vote anymore and have our votes taken away because the person who's running for president is running from criminal charges, multiple investigations, not just in Georgia, but in New York as well, also in DC and in Florida. We are looking at a person who is running for president of the United States, not necessarily to govern for an effective second term on anything conceivably related to policy or to make the country better. We are looking right now at a presidential candidate who is running to effectively avoid himself being convicted and sent to prison. He is not running for president. He is running from prison. And that is something that I feel a lot of us have to look at, that we as a nation have to take in, because this is something that is very, very much real. And David Atkins, a California member of the DNC, as well as a contributor to the Washington Monthly, he wrote an article in the Washington Monthly uh, saying that a Trump victory would create a constitutional crisis. He says here, quote, Donald Trump's reckless criminality has not only placed him in dire legal payroll, he has also put the entire country at risk of an unprecedented constitutional crisis. The major four cases against Trump are each damning in their own way and present possible prosecutorial challenges, but Trump's guilt in all of them seems indisputable. Unless Republican jurors engage um, in a historic act of jury nullification, it seems very likely that the former president will be convicted on 
at least one of the charges. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, Trump is dominating his Republican rivals in GOP primary polling. It is unlikely that any new revelations will alter Republican primary voters' views because Trump is likely to become the GOP presidential nominee. His criminality has become the country's problem. If he wins the election, it will plunge the nation into crisis. If Trump is convicted of the federal charges related to his purloing of classified documents and attempting theft of the 2020 election, the 2024 election may hinge on whether Trump should sit in prison or the White House. If he wins, Trump will almost certainly part attempt to pardon himself. He has insisted that he has the right to do so as president and reportedly almost did it while in office. Mr. Atkins then goes on to essentially say that if presidents can pardon themselves, then they could essentially commit mass murders and get away with it. Quote, if pliant members of Congress refuse to impeach for such brazen crimes, presidents would become unaccountable dictators. A self-pardon by Trump would almost certainly reach the Supreme Court, but even if majority of justices refuse to allow it, Trump would almost certainly ignore the ruling, precipitating an even greater nullification crisis. The Georgia case is even more dire for Trump and the American constitutional system. If Trump is convicted on the state charges, he cannot pardon himself, nor would the GOP governor, assuming he was inclined to do so. Pardon power would fall to the Georgia State Parole Board, but in Georgia, pardons are only considered five years after a sentence is completed. The racketeering charge carries a potential incarceration of five up to five up to twenty years, minimum of five, of course, although state judges have discretion to suspend prison time. The thought of Trump behind bars already has some Georgia Republicans desperately pushing to alter state law and transfer pardon power to the governor. End quote. So he talks about how Georgia Republicans are trying to transfer state power from that parole board to the governor of Georgia. They're effectively reinstating that power in the governor. The reason why the Georgia governor cannot pardon people, the reason why the the governor of Georgia cannot give pardons is because of an, a scandal back in the 20s, I believe it was, when the, you know, they were effectively selling pardons, just handing them out. So that was a whole corruption case. And that's why, that's how the pardon power got taken out of the governor's office and given to a state parole board, of course. But they're saying here that Georgia Republicans could effectively take that out and give it back to the governor. Quote, given the timelines of the trials, the possibilities are mind-numbing. In one scenario, Trump could be convicted on the federal documents case, awaiting sentencing, or even sitting in prison when ballots are cast next autumn. It seems unlikely, but strange things can happen in politics. If Trump wins from jail, either the ongoing president wouldn't have to pardon himself, or he would need to take office from federal prison and then attempt to pardon, pardon himself while running the executive branch from behind bars. Alternatively, Trump could remain free on the federal counts and win the November election only to be convicted on the Georgia counts in 2025. Trump would most likely refuse to be taken into custody, setting up a showdown between the states and the federal government and among law enforcement authorities. End quote. So, <laughs> I mean, sprawling, shocking, stunning, but this is what we are facing. This is not hyperbolic. Mr. Atkins ends his article, quote, Ultimately, the parties and the voters put the country in this position. If Republican 
Political leaders and primary voters cannot put the country first. It will be up to the rest of us to avert the biggest constitutional crisis since the Civil War. End quote. The real stark possibility of Donald Trump being convicted in either one of these cases is high. It's high. It may not be all, but it very could well just be one. And the case that's most likely to have a conviction is in Georgia, this state trial. If there is a conviction and Donald Trump does win the election in 2024, we are looking at a potential constitutional crisis of a state and federal showdown where potentially the military could get involved, where potentially law enforcement could get involved to avoid taking the president into custody, to avoid the president of the United States serving his his prison term out. That would effectively plunge us into a constitutional crisis, um, then pending on, of course, an autocratic system being installed in the U.S. government. This is not hyperbolic. This is not extreme. This is not remotely hypothetical. This is something that could very, very much well happen. David Atkins is a member of the California DNC. He also is a contributor to the Washington Monthly. Mr. David Atkins joins me next. Stay with us. Whether you put down your phone to be there for your daughter or pick up your phone to call a helpline for your roommate, When it comes to mental health, now more than ever, every action counts. Joining me now for the interview is David Atkins. He is a member of the California DNC, as well as a contributor to the Washington Monthly. Uh, Mr. Atkins, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thrilled to be here. Appreciate it. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you about your article that you wrote in the Washington Monthly. Um because you do present in this article um, that these indictments that we have, the four cases against Trump, but you also say that this could yield um, a constitutional crisis for the country if Trump were to be elected, um, essentially raising the power of pardoning himself or perhaps wanting to not ever have an election again in this country. Um, what are the prospects that we're looking at in, in these cases as most of the trials are set for after the election? Right. Uh, well, it's a, it's really complicated um, and it's extremely challenging and unprecedented for the country. Um, as you noted, most of the trials are set for after the election. Uh, one of the big trials, of course, is set for before the election. Either way, though, uh, Trump or any candidate, really, uh, we've had the example of Lyndon LaRouche in the past, can run from jail if they need to. And Trump is no exception. The, the great challenge becomes what happens if Trump were to be elected in the context of these trials, whether they occur before, whether they occur after. If he's convicted, what happens if he's, uh, what happens in the transition period? Can he pardon himself? Obviously, one of the things that's happening here is this election is about to be sort of a referendum on whether Trump should be in jail or whether he should be in the White House. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big deal. 
And obviously, if he ends up in the White House, he will attempt to pardon himself of all crimes. He'll attempt to force uh, whatever officials in Georgia are relevant to pardon him for the Georgia <clears throat> for the Georgia crimes. And we've never seen anything like this before. That is definitely true. And one of the things that you mentioned in your article that I was also struck by is that um, Georgia does not like, unlike other states, the pardon power in Georgia is not for the governor. It's at a state board level. Um, They're attempting to essentially change the law to conjure that differently so that Trump could be pardoned there. Um, Out of all the cases that's happening right now, um, the federal cases, you know, hypothetically, he could get off with that. But the state cases are very, very much um, a, a a cause for concern in part in terms of Trump. Um, you know, you mentioned in your article that uh, if he is elected and he is convicted in Georgia, there could be like a state versus federal showdown. Um, how would something like that play out? It could play out any number of ways, including the worst ways you can possibly imagine. Right? Yeah. Uh, think of any situation in which the courts disagreed with each other, or ultimately the Supreme Court agreed that Trump would have to face some sort of consequence, whether it was not being able to pardon himself. And and again, I remind people that the president being able to pardon themselves of crimes is not, is not certain there. It's, it's only from a department of justice memo. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no, certainty that they could do that if they were allowed to do that they could murder people as i say in the article murder people in broad daylight and then pardon themselves a a day later now of course there'd probably be a a state crime but maybe in the dc jurisdiction like whatever point is this isn't this is crazy Mm -hmm. so um it's not certain the supreme court might say he can't pardon himself but then what happens does he go andrew jackson and nullify that uh in the context of the georgia situation um if the state refused to pardon him, but he's sitting in the White House and the state says, the, the state of Georgia says, you must come to jail. And Trump says, no, I'm not going to. Then what happens? It's yeah. not entirely certain what happens. The court, that might go to the Supreme Court. The courts would say he has to go to jail. And if he still refuses, right, then you have legitimate potential civil conflict right? Then you have potentially sides of the military uh, or sides of the of the law enforcement arms uh, mm-hmm. being up against each other. Like th- this is, this is very, very serious business. Exactly. And I recall um, essentially back during Watergate, which essentially pales in comparison to any of this, but yeah. um, back to Watergate, when there was this sort of ambiguous guidance from DOJ on if a former president could be indicted or charged or arrested for anything because of essentially the essentially everything that the president does like the obligations in the office and everything and I was curious to essentially wonder I mean obviously we've never had anything like that before Vice President Spiro Agnew of course under Nixon was indicted but this is something that's completely different we're looking at a presidential candidate who's not necessarily running to govern for an effective second term, we are effectively looking at a presidential candidate who is an active defendant in multiple criminal cases, who is essentially running to avoid jail time. How do we grapple with that as a country? And 
how do we come to our senses that this election to him may mean something uh, more sinister and more diabolical as to like taking over the Republic once he gets in to avoid jail time after office? A complex series of, of excellent questions. I think, you know, obviously the first way we deal with it is by hopefully over 50% of the public, Electoral College notwithstanding, um, not voting for the man, right? That's that's the first <laughs> way you deal with it democratically because in our system, we, although this is also disputed, um, but we generally allow people who are convicted of crimes to run for office uh, with some exceptions, but certainly to run for president if they so choose with the exception of people who have engaged in an insurrection which is one of the things that he is being brought up on but again the courts might disagree on that and who knows where that goes and then if the supreme court said well you can't serve as president because you did an insurrection which i don't think this court would do mm -hmm. what if he ignores the court again like this all comes down to uh, that question and court nullification um so no, it's 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 an almost impossible situation. If you have fifty percent of the country that is willing to absolutely elect someone who is a, a criminal and a career criminal, mm -hmm. uh, above and beyond that, the other thing that you mentioned is it's not just whether he stays in jail or not, and it's not just his crimes and accountability for those crimes. It's the fact that the consequence of his platform is also the the deconstruction of civil society as we know it, which is also something I've written about, um, what he and the Heritage Foundation and uh, and the others in the right-wing conservative uh, movement, uh, media and think tanks and otherwise, are proposing is a deconstruction of the regulatory state and the uh, elimination of the uh, independence of the Department of Justice and the uh, overriding authority of the executive branch uh, functionally making him a dictator above and beyond the concerns about jail and accountability it's an enormous moment for the country and this doesn't just fall on the backs of republican voters who should know better than to do this and could in theory pick someone less destructive than this it also falls to the entire conservative movement it falls to fox news for allowing this to happen it falls to all their think tanks for allowing this to happen they could make hard choices here and they refuse to in regard to um ultimately corrupting and politicizing the department of justice and other parts of our judicial system we are seeing efforts by um republicans um, specifically in Georgia, as this case is happening, and the state legislature making attempts to make a new law, um, well, acting on a new law, that would essentially give them the power to remove any prosecutor for misconduct. Yeah. And um, not surprisingly so, they are going right after DA Fonnie Willis. Um, what do you make of that overt attack? And how are they going to essentially try to do this without it coming off as political, when it obviously is? I don't think they care if it comes off as political. I mean, this is obviously an, uh, the next step. They're leveraging new and more aggressive steps in this process, but they've been doing this since at least 2016 and certainly after 2020, where they're going after civil servants of all kinds who don't cooperate. Um, this goes from minor election administrators to secretary, all the way up to secretaries of state to um, uh, 
you know, Ron DeSantis uh, doing this on other grounds, not just, you know, Trump prosecution grounds, but on other grounds with, with local DAs. Uh, uh-huh. They are, they have, to obviously what's happening with, with uh, Fannie Willis, they are, they have made no reservations and no pretenses about their willingness to throw over all the norms of civil society and go after selectively any public servant who doesn't simply do the bidding of the fascist movement. I was watching, um, well, reluctantly, (laughs) I was watching the Republican debate last week, I believe that was, and I sort of um, knew what to expect. Uh, Trump was not going to be there, of course, but the accusations that were thrown around in the craziness was still very much in the air. Um, And initially from like a social standpoint, it was, you know, stupid and comical. But as I kept watching it, I realized that it had become clear that there's sort of like this, I guess, infection um, in the Republican Party that's, it's like beyond, it's like, it's, how do I say this? It's like it can't be fixed. It's like the problem is already irrevocable. Um, And it's almost like the amount of accusations and craziness you saw in the debate was dangerously incoherent. It was also dangerous for the country in the fact that if Trump loses the election, and let's say, or if he doesn't get the nomination, there is no other effective nominee for the Republican Party to lead this country as president. I was just curious to know what your stance was on that and how we're supposed to continue to govern as a two-function you know, democratic country? That is an excellent question. I'm going to try to be as brief as I can with my answer. Um, I've got a few years on, I've got a few years on you. So uh, let me uh, age myself by saying I I have, you know, been watching Republican politics for, well, since at least the nineties. And (laughs) look, Republican ideology has always been based on mirror, smoke mirrors and, and lies, right? But they were, it was smoke, mirrors, and lies that at least had some sort of grounding in policy. And that, in the, uh, you know, per the famous Atwater quote, was absolutely racist, but at least tried to hide it in the context of tax policy or urban policies or what have you. But, you know, tried to be respectable and tried to have some tangent to reality. As we got through the George W. Bush era, and then to Sarah Palin, you started to see a firm anti-intellectualism, a strident anti-intellectualism that went way beyond what Reagan was doing, although it sort of, you can trace it there, you can trace it all the way back to Nixon, but it's a, these are a series of, of it's a process. Um, and you could see that developing, this sort of know-nothingism in the Republican Party, and a sort of increasing disconnection from reality as they uh, as they said, you know, uh, you're in the reality-based community and we're just going to do what we do, right? And you'll just have to learn from that. Um, and then of course, Iraq happens and, and then, you know, turns out that reality bites. But <clears throat> as you move into Trump and as you move into this era and the COVID era and everything, what you have seen is conspiracy, conspiracy-mindedness has moved almost to one side of the political spectrum. When I was a kid, conspiracy theories were not left or right valent. 
right? There were a bunch of lefties who believed a lot of conspiracy theories. There were a bunch of righties who believed different kinds of conspiracy theories. If you listened to conspiracy theory radio, it was a big mix. It was all over the place. Mm -hmm. As you've had education polarization take place, and as it has become increasingly clear that reality does not comport with conservative Republican ideology, not foreign policy realities, as we learned from Iraq, Afghanistan, and everything else, not domestic policy realities, as we've learned from um, trickle-down economics, not <laughs> working, right? And stimulus, absolutely working. Um, as we've learned from environmental and climate policy, climate change is real and the biggest threat facing mankind, and there's no conservative solution to that. Uh, it has increased. It has become the case that the conspiratorial mindset has absolutely shifted entirely to to the right. If you listen to conspiracy radio, it's almost entirely right wing. If you go to conspiracy websites, it's entirely right wing. You combine that again with the education polarization problem, and you combine that with the urban rural divides, and as many sort of from the socialist left would point out, the 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 left behindness of many of these rural white communities in America contributing to the toxicity of their anger. Not that I'm excusing them in any way, shape, or form. I am not. And I have really made a reversal over the last five to six years of defending them for this. I no longer defend them at all. But that combination of all of these things leads this toxic stew where all there is in the Republican Party is conspiracies, lies, and a desperate desire to hurt liberals, to hurt the other part of the country. All that's left is wanting to own the libs, hurt the libs, and believe the wildest QAnon-related things about what is happening because they can feel things modernizing against them. They, the young people are against them, right? 18 to 40-year-olds are in a completely different place socially. And the corporations that want to sell things to 18 to 40 year olds are, are part of like liberal social culture, if not liberal economics, but, but liberal social culture. And they sense that too. Uh, no, it's a huge disconnect. And, and I think the only way that we get out of it is for them to lose elections by big enough margins that the apparatus of the Republican party has to make adjustments and can no longer afford to merely cater to these voters. Mm. That is an interesting point, especially uh, regarding the last midterm election that happened back in 20 last year, 2022, um, because Republicans did expect to have like this whole red mirage. It was not that. In fact, they did take the house, but it was like a small majority. And we did see like, you know, wide scale defeats across the map. I'm curious to know, um, I guess from a political perspective, if that they will eventually see that continuing to run on Trump is a losing message and begin to change. And if they do change, they can't just go back to the regular Republican politics. It's going to be something different because the party sort of has been meshed into like culture wars and, you know, overt racism and embracing Nazism and white supremacy. What can we expect to see from a potentially changed Republican Party if they continue to lose elections? Well, I have to admit that I am more pessimistic than most here on that front. 
Um, most people are polite enough not to blame the voters, right? Mm. Most people in the center don't want to blame the voters and say, oh, if we just do centrism, this will all be fixed. Most people on the left like to think of people as sort of fundamentally good and they're being manipulated against their own interests by Fox News and rich corporations and all of that to, to vote against their interests. I don't think so. I think the problem here is, is much, much deeper. We have had a, a poison in American culture with regard to the racist, misogynist, theocratic conservative movement since the founding of the country, right? This is not new. It erupted into multiple conflicts that eventually led to the Civil War. It got sublimated after the Civil War because the Democratic Party basically tolerated um, Confederacy and, and Jim Crow as part of the Farmer Labor Coalition. When that ended, it, it re-erupted again. Now the parties are more, are more coherent. And uh, this is not just a race thing. It's also, of course, an LGBT revolution thing. It's a sexual revolution thing. It's a feminist revolution thing, among others. And the voters that actively want a racist, patriarchal, theocratic structure and have wanted it, and their daddies and grandpappies and great-grandpappies wanted it, they still want that, and they view it as fundamental to their identity and their vision of how the country should be for it to be taken away. This is not merely an economic or material problem, right? Uh, th these people are not voting against their own interests. This, this is their interest. This was their ancestors' interest. Um. And, and I'm not letting, you know, northern white people off the hook either, or men generally off the hook. Like, we all bear bear our, uh, the brunt of it um, and, and introspection about it. Uh, you can certainly see housing policy in that light, too, in blue states and blue mm -hmm. cities. But I don't think this is something that's easily solved. This is not a situation where once Trump goes away, if he goes to jail or loses another election, the fever will break. Right now, what you're seeing with Vivek Ramaswamy is another Trumpy charlatan in just a different, in a slight, slightly different direction. It's not really an improvement. It's just different, right? Mm -hmm. What the Republican base craves is these sort of outside outsider figures who will punch liberals in the mouth and be completely disconnected to any sort of policy reality. And that's not going away after Trump. And I don't think, much as I think that Fox News and the conservative infrastructure and the think tanks and all of that bear a lot of responsibility here for not fighting harder, they also are not able to control this tiger. When Fox News tried to pull back from Trump, their audience started going to Newsmax. And Fox News came back into the corral because otherwise they were going to lose to their competitors. Mm. The any Republican politician, any think tank that doesn't toe the line, loses its funding and loses its support. Ultimately, this comes down to the GOP base, frankly. Um, and I and and unfortunately, because of the way the Senate is apportioned, uh, because of the way gerrymandering works, 
uh, because of the way the Electoral College works, the GOP base will continue to be able to punch above its weight. Hmm. Uh, this is a problem that's going to be with us for some time, I think, unfortunately. I will say um, that is a point that essentially I've, I guess I've never really considered before, because if you really do look back and think about this from a historical and political perspective, especially for people who've been closely watching the party for a long time, Trump coming to the Republican Party is not necessarily um, what changed it or what revolutionized it. This was that type of sentiment and extremism was always there. It was just brewing and waiting to fester and to fester. And now it is bloomed. And I'm just, I'm curious to know if you believe or have hope, because I've become very pessimistic politically as well, um, in the voters, in the sense that they will understand that we are heading towards a constitutional crisis and that democracy really is on the line here because one of the definitely terrifying things here of course is a a person you know trump who loses the election and goes to jail or he wins the election and you know tries to become president for life do you believe that the voters um are conscious that this is serious enough to act and to actually vote and take this seriously. I do have enough faith in the American voter that as these trials continue to percolate and as it becomes clear the, the scope of Trump's wrongdoing and as he goes on and as he there's more attention paid to the frankly utterly irrational things that he is saying on the campaign trail far above and beyond what was happening in 2016. That Enough voters will, who are currently persuadable, and there's not very many of them left, but, but enough persuadable voters will do the right thing and not allow this to, to, to happen. Unfortunately, obviously, we have several candidacies that are being designed to um, siphon off votes, whether it's the No Labels people or, you know, uh, uh, Cornell West or whatever. Um that could play spoiler. That having been said, I, I am confident, I think, that the voters will not put Trump back in office. But that's not, that's, that's such an uncertain thing because anything can happen in politics. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there could be health issues. There could be a scandal. There could be a sudden recession. Who knows? The, uh, you know, American politics is unpredictable and any problems uh, come at the expense usually of the incumbent party whether deserved or not um so it's really uncertain and a little bit terrifying over the longer term beyond this upcoming election i do have faith in the power of the younger generations that are coming up there is some data that older millennials like myself are already turning a little bit more conservative. I'm not sure I fully buy that. Um, there is some question as to what happens when those when uh, many of us inherit homes that we're currently locked out of and whether we get conservative and protective after that. Generally speaking, though, at least on the social issues, regardless of what happens with the zoning and economic issues, but at least on the broader social issues and these great grievances that are animating the right. 
I have confidence that over time, the burgeoning power of uh, millennial and Generation Z voters will begin to set some of this extremely dangerous and divisive conflict down and reduce its embers. But I don't think it will happen merely by Trump disappearing from the stage. Hmm. Um, heading into the 2024 uh, presidential election, of course, we have the incumbent president, uh, Joe Biden, who's running for re-election and against um, the soon to be, um, well, the Republican nominee, of course. Um, voters have, I guess, sort of like American voters have a tendency to um, not necessarily always give the person who's in office credit for like their policies or initiatives mm-hmm. that have helped like revitalize the country, of course. Um, when it comes to like the policies that have been done under the Biden administration that have helped um, revitalize the economy, how do Democrats engage and inform voters that this was the work of the Biden administration that, hey, we did this? Um, how is, like, you know, I guess going back to like Obamacare and that was happened, like Democrats sort of kind of like ran away from that. It didn't really like promote it or say that, hey, we did this or stand yeah. by it. Um, how can they be more effective and more vocal about their initiatives and their achievements in this election? Honestly, it's very challenging. Uh, And this is one of my big critiques of the entire Democratic Party apparatus and and even above and beyond Democratic Party, how the entire uh, left and center left has organized itself in relation to American politics um, and the communications around American politics. Uh, We have had a very sort of West wingy kind of of attitude that says, and and on the left, that if you do materially good things for people, that will create conditions that are beneficial toward a more left-oriented policies that will elect democratic candidates. I uh, in the center left, a resistance to using any form of propaganda or you know persuasion that might be seen as uncouth or untoward or or icky. Mm-hmm. And what you have and what has resulted from that is a culture in which both the leftists and the center leftists for their own reasons believe that if you just make good policy and you do good things for people and then those things happen that either the voters will reward you because their their lives are material better materially better or the institutions of society and the media will reward you by reporting on all the wonderful things that you did and all you need to do is do those things do some press releases about them. Maybe if from a more leftist standpoint, like slap your name on the on the stimulus checks and everything will be fine. But it will not be fine. Like you can do maybe and maybe when everyone was listening to Walter Cronkite, maybe. But that that's not how things work. Yeah. yeah. What the right has is a massive, completely unfair completely biased 24 seven propaganda network so that it does not matter if they did good things or did bad things. The most politically active people on the right are obsessively listening to their talk radio and their Fox news. 
And then they're the water cooler people that all the other people listen to is sort of how it filters down, uh, down the water cooler. And the talking points get promulgated and they are impervious to reality. Meanwhile, the things that Democrats do filter through, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post or NPR, which is which are organizations that are trying their darndest to be even-handed <laughs> and not give one party too much credit, right? And that is such an, you know, maybe there's MSNBC, which, you know, is obviously biased, but honestly, even in its bias, it's truth-telling. They they, they, it has obviously a perspective, but it's not lying about anything. But even so, how many people are tuning into MSNBC and a lot of MSNBC is about, oh, look at how like Trump this, Trump that, Trump the other. It's not so much touting material accomplishments because the other problem is material accomplishments are pretty boring to most people. Wow. They're, they're I have not a question culture. on that. In terms yes. of uh, the shift in American politics and, you know, what used to be something that would be like covered on like the daily news or something that would be covered... Yeah. Um, like just in news in general, material accomplishments in politics noun is boring compared to like, you know, extremism or Trump indictments and stuff like that. Yeah. So do you feel like it's also like, I guess like a media problem in terms of getting that message out there in terms of like what um, people are interested into? Because like people are less likely to physically do research and see, hey, what's the party doing today? No, I, I absolutely agree. I think the time for the, the best time for investing in a massive liberal left communications apparatus was 20, 30 years ago. We are dead in the water on talk radio. Uh, we are obviously way behind on cable news. Uh, the right has gained the internet. Elon Musk just bought Twitter, right? and is doing what he's doing to that. Uh, most of the biggest Facebook pages are conservative. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the right has gained social media. In part, that's due to sort of the nature of these things. The most, the most controversial, dumbest stuff gets the most engagement, which is sort of how the right does this. Um, and fascism has a certain pull to a certain group of people. And it's hard once fascism gets a voice to hear anything else. Because it's so vibrantly controversial. Uh, and the left has to like pound it down and the right is like, ha ha, right? Um, uh, is, is, isn't this a funny joke? Ha ha, right? So the, the challenge though is that through all of these corners, the left needed to have been doing these things in an intentional way to build up a massive communications apparatus 30 years ago. That was the best time. The second best time is now. And, and if I had, if I, if I had the power to do so, that's what I would be investing in. Not just within the democratic party, because the, the party apparatus can only do so much. Although I have ideas about that. I think the party should be much more actively engaged in promoting its own uh, accomplishments than, than it is. But I would be massively investing in internet, even radio as much as it's outdated, internet, TV, like just all, all the spectrums toward organizations that had no pretense of trying to be the New York Times, 
that were absolutely dedicated to saying, look, we're not going to get a fair shake anywhere else. The other side is playing for keeps. Let us tell you what we've been doing and what we've actually been doing for people. Hmm. Um, and let me tell you what the consequences are of the other side. Because if you look at the polling and what voters actually believe Republicans have done, what voters actually believe the Democrats have done, it doesn't bear any relation to reality. That is the media's fault, but the media is not going to change. You can work the rest. You can complain to the New York Times. But ultimately, that's the job you have to do yourself by setting up the communications apparatuses to relay the messages. Mm. So there is like, I think, three minutes left on this okay, Zoom call. I'll be quick. I'll be quick. Of their new um, policy. So I'm going to ask you one last question. Sure. Um, in terms of the future of the U.S. as a democratic country, yeah. Um, where do you feel we stand? And do you feel that we can still, you know, honorably and pridely say that in a couple of years? Wow. Um, the, the short answer is presidential systems are inherently unstable. Our democracy, the people love to revere the founders, this, that, and the other. I don't blame them. They did the best they could. They were the first to really try. Um, but other systems have learned how to create more stable democracies. Um, presidential systems are, are have not had a good record. Uh, countries that have found that have built their governments on our model have found themselves dealing with presidents who tried to usurp all the power, courts that got ignored or corrupted. Um, it is it is inherently unstable. And one of the only reasons we've been stable is we've been a little bit lucky. Uh, but we also had a civil war. We had uh, we had a World War II president who served four terms. Yeah. Um, we have, you know, we and we were lucky that that his character was what it was. Um, I, I think I think some of it's been luck. Some of it's been a little structural. Some of it's been adherence to norms. But it's a challenge. And I think that for us to really get through this without a little more luck and some generational um, effects, I think we need to make some reforms to stabilize this. We're not going to turn ourselves into a parliamentary democracy, obviously. That's too big of a lift. But I think that we can make some reforms to build resiliency, um, him in the executive branch a little bit, uh, hold, bring more accountability to the judicial branch, um, and uh, hopefully we can get through this without a constitutional convention. Once again, my guest is Mr. David Atkins. He is a member of the California DNC. Uh, Mr. Atkins, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. Welcome back. Once again, that was my guest, Mr. David Atkins. He's a California a member uh, of the Democratic National Committee. Um, I will say, let me let me apologize for talking for 25 minutes at the beginning of the show, my opening segment. Um, I did realize that that interview was um, 36 minutes. So, you know, converged together. This is about like an hour long episode. So I do apologize, but I really do hope that all of you enjoyed this episode and stayed and listened to the entire thing. Um, I very, very much appreciate your support and your gracious compliments. Um, you can follow us on Facebook. It is the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Um, I think it's at Jeremiah Patterson because like it wouldn't let me put the name there because Facebook wants me to just put my name. Anyways, you can just follow the show 
online. It's called The Jeremiah Patterson Show. It's available on Facebook. Uh, um, once again, this is much a, a very engaging discussion. Also a discussion that was serious that people need to hear. Make sure to please uh, share this episode with your family and friends. Um, because this is something that is going to continue to be covered for for years as the trial dates are set and um, as the investigations continue and open in other states as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired. I will see you again on Saturday for another episode and then again on Sunday. All right. Take care.